Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Okay, guys, welcome to another session of Reef Therapy. I'm Jeremy Gay, and uh, I'm here today with Shane Danger Coleman from um, Sustainable Reefs down in Cairns, Australia. Thanks for coming on, Shane. No worries at all. Glad to be here. Um, Thank you. Yeah, the, the, there's a bit of a lag. I've actually um, I'm hot desking in in my uh, local aquarium store today to get a better internet connection, but we seem to have chosen each other from like opposite parts of the planet, so um, we're we're quite a distance away. So hopefully, in the recording, all this lag will catch up. But when we talk, there's going to be a few seconds between um, the sound coming through. So hopefully, hopefully, it will still record okay. Okay, so. Um, just um, tell us a bit about yourself then, Shane. You're um, you're a, a coral farmer by trade, and and just tell us a bit about sustainable reefs and coral essentials. Um, yeah, well, my background is um, engineering and fabrication, and I did that for uh, I guess probably maybe fifteen years or so. And uh, reefing was my hobby, and that's what kept me sane. And uh, about four yeah four years ago, I got an opportunity to move up. Uh, from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland to Cairns in Queensland. It's about 19 hours north uh, to give you a bit of scope, and that's 19 good, fast hours. So it's we're, it's a pretty big state. Australia's huge. Um, so moved into the tropics and uh, taking a job coral farming. And, um, yeah, it, it's it's been really good, and it's, it's impacted my hobby quite a lot because uh, it's taken me until – about two weeks ago that I've actually wanted to have an aquarium again. I haven't really had that uh, desire to keep an aquarium in the house somewhere uh, whilst I have, I'm working with them all day and almost every day. So, um, but yeah, last week I decided that I'll set it up again. It's So it's coming back. But in the meantime, um, I've just been, yeah, keeping busy with other avenues of salt water, but just not so much... Um, the reef aquarium that everyone knows. So, so just, just tell us a bit about sustainable reefs, um, what it is, what it does, your role there, and a bit about coral essentials. Um, yeah, so, well, yeah, the job I took, it was uh, sustainable reefs. It's a coral farm. Um, we don't have anything to do with wild collection now as much as I really like wild collection. Um, and I would love to actually get out and do some uh, wild collection on with others at some point. Uh, I still get out into the natural reef. I'm actually going out to the reef tomorrow. It's going to be quite heavy rain, but we're going out tomorrow um, just recreationally. Um, but um, the coral farm runs entirely off propagation, and um, so we just propagate and make copies of everything. And um, that's been running for I think eight years and I've been there for four, the last four. And the coral farm serves as a research and development uh, facility for coral essentials, which is a product line of supplements basically. So we develop and test them on the farm and then send them out uh, to consumers once we know that it's growing corals really well. So how does that work with um, – so, so you're not wild collecting any more corals then or, or very few. How does that affect your your collection? You know, th th there must be a need to refresh perhaps sometimes or a desire to refresh, you know, all, all these nice species that are out on the reef. How how does that work? Yeah, definitely. Um, and even, even while we were collecting, so what we were – Dominantly specialising in Acropora when we were wild collecting, but we could collect other species, but we were specialising in Acropora. Um, but whilst we were wild collecting, I was still buying corals from LFS. Uh, I'd buy them from other collectors, and we still have quite a few collectors that we're really good friends with, and we, we buy just one-off pieces um, specifically for the colour or the species or both. Uh, there's still a whole lot of species on my wish list to complete the Noah's Ark of coral farms to, to make sure we've got enough of the mother colonies to be able to make it completely sustainable. Um, so we still buy 
a few wild colonies here and there, especially if it's a different colour variation of something that we don't have yet. Uh, and, yeah, there are a few species that I'm still targeting as well that are just a little bit on the rare side or hard to propagate. So we're still in the process of uh, learning how to propagate them that uh, that doesn't involve spawning because, yeah, it's a different ball game. So that, that was going to be my next question, actually. So um, obviously you're collecting these corals. Um, some are easier to propagate than others. I mean, are there any that, I mean, I don't know anyone who propagates acanthophilia or trachophilia. Is that something you can do or? Oh, I, I lost a bit of audio there. I think you said cataphilia. Um if you did, yeah. I have got cataphilia down pat. I can cut those up into really small pieces and and they're coming back uh, probably about a four to six month turnaround on uh, cataphilia frags and that's cut down from little tiny pieces like that. Uh, and that comes up to a sort of a 30 mil disc size in four to six months. Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't cataphilia, it was um acanthophilia and um oh, trachophilia. Yeah. Is is that yeah. something you can propagate or yeah, those two. Yeah. Uh trachophilia are actually a little bit harder than um acanthophilia or the deshies. Uh but yeah, deshies, uh they're down pat. They take around about uh probably a year bare minimum from a, f- a frag to a grown out frag, which the skeleton has then become circular, not just the flesh, the skeleton itself is circular around about a year at bare minimum, but usually a bit longer, around the 18-month mark is that. Um, Trachophilia, I'm having a little bit of success with, but the timeframes, they're just not viable uh, unless I can figure out how to really speed them up. But they do frag, they do heal, but I've had some sitting there for probably three and a half years now, and I still wouldn't call them ready. Why? Why? (laughs) <laughs> that that's not a very quick turnaround is it no it doesn't make it worth the time doing <laughs> so no. it's 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 funny we're talking about um aussie corals and i'm here in the uk and at the moment we've got um an import ban on queensland corals and uh, yeah. it's, it's funny how you, you kind of you don't know what you miss until you can't get it and um when indonesia was banned um we really missed Indo and the torches, and now that Australia's banned and Indo's back, I'm I'm so <laughs> desperate for some Queensland, you know, Bowerbankai's and you know, micro lords and and scollies and all those things that I just took for granted. That now I'm just like, Ugh! I wish I could get. Yeah, them. it's it's going to be a little while. It's until uh, I'm not actually, I'm not entirely clued up on what's going on in the background there at the moment i was a little while ago but i've kind of let it all slip away because i haven't been involved in the in the export especially to the uk i don't think we've done an export to the uk in quite a while so uh i've kind of Mm. followed up on a lot of that but i would say it would be a while before uh the eu or uk as well start allowing some corals once they're the scientists have proven that it is sustainable at certain numbers and, and that because our quota catch limits for the, uh, the wild collection companies, they've been dramatically cut. Um, and then some of them have been quite unwarranted. Like I think Duncan Ops got a slashing of numbers, but I've dove plenty of spots out of the reef and there's football fields of the stuff. It's not risk it. It's not at risk at all. It's one of the most yep. abundant corals on the reef. It's really silly. So some of the scientists that do these studies just maybe just pluck numbers out of the air and, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, some species could be at risk of overcollection or um, natural risks. But... Sure. Um, so, so let's talk about um, saltwater plants. We, we discussed topics yeah. briefly via messenger before you came on, and it, this this one is interesting. So um, obviously, this this lags a bit of an issue. So I'm just going to let you take the floor for the next kind of ten minutes or so. Just tell us about saltwater plants. I mean, are we talking seagrasses? Are we talking macroalgae? If you could tell us a bit about you know where they grow, how they grow, whether we can have them in the aquarium, good things, bad things. I'm just going to let you take it away. 
Yeah, so um, as I was saying before, when I moved up to Cairns to take this job, I kind of lost a lot of, uh, I'll say interest. I, I, no, it's not, it's not the right word, but I lost interest for reef aquariums because I was working with it all the time. But I found interest in other saltwater things, and one of those things was saltwater plants. And what I mean by that is like the mangroves and things, and everyone's heard of mangroves. So there's like there's um, Julian Sprung, he's made the mangroves famous, and he takes them to all of the uh, reef stocks and the magnas, and he's got tubs and he's got ponds, and they're beautiful. But living up here and, and, of, and down from where I was down the Sunshine Coast and the other end of Queensland, there was all of these plants that I kept seeing around estuaries and uh, beaches as well that I'm looking at them and going, they're pretty much growing in salt water. Why can't like this reef aquarium hobby is so fascinated with mangroves. I'm sure you've seen all those old photos with people putting those mangroves in their sump and they don't do much. They're very, they grow three leaves and then die. But I see all these other shrubs, grasses, little bushes, succulents, and there's quite a few. So I currently have 12 species of completely 35-part salinity in my pond downstairs. There's 12 species that are – or, sorry, 11 that are not mangroves. Um, and there's grasses. There's a succulent which is edible. It's called sesuvium, and it's probably in a lot of your gardens already. Um, well, the genus. Uh, but, yeah, sesuvium porticolostum. And it's edible. Um, it, it's a little bit crunchy. I actually snap some off here and there and put them in salads. They're great. Um, but yeah, the other my favourite is mangrove holly, and it looks exactly like the holly leaves, the Christmas ones that are spiky, um, and it produces a really beautiful purple flower. And on that flower, it produces a seed pod. Um, they grow from cuttings. They're they're really cool. Uh, so I started doing some coastal revegetation projects around uh, cans in the areas with another crew. Like as in, I was just, well, I didn't spearhead the idea. It wasn't me at all. It was just me volunteering to do it. So getting out there and digging holes and planting these plants. Uh, got in contact with the uh, botanists and the horticulturists that were growing these plants and managed to get a few extras for my home project. And now I'm really interested to see that I was growing them in full salt water and not just salt marsh brackish areas. Um, so I have this fiberglass pond downstairs and it was originally going to be a part of a larger reef build that I lost interest in. Um, and now it's just become this bit of a swamp. Um, it's a bit hard on here to do without photos, but it's a black box reef on Facebook. It's a Facebook page. There's photos there if you want to see them and there's a few species names listed and stuff if you're interested in seeking out some of these species i'm not too sure uh how you mentioned if they were good or bad for the aquarium i'm not too sure if they do remove nutrients i assume that they do but just like mangroves they don't remove anything that's noticeable or worthwhile like if you're putting a mangrove in your system for the benefit of, sorry, for the purpose of removing nutrients, it isn't going to work. It's, they don't do it. It's ornamental. Um, so uh, I've dropped my thoughts on Black Box Reef about uh, keeping mangroves and other plants in there. Yeah, so check it out if you want. It's just, it's kind of just like a diary. I don't really keep up with it too much. But yeah, there are, that's where you will find some photos of this pond that I'm talking about. So, yeah, that's about the saltwater plants. It just keeps me interested. Yeah, that's really cool. I was going to ask you about the um, potential, obviously, with lots of terrariums and paludariums and the kind of saltwater potential for that, but also as nutrient uptake. And you kind of answered my question there. Mangroves are slow, as we know. You may as well just use, you know, ketomorpha. Yeah. And um, the, the, the same question with the, um, with the terrestrial plants. But also, do you think there's any risk of this kind of Aleopathy, this kind of, you know, them actually releasing things that could be harmful to corals? That is one of the next steps that I want to take. Um, once I have, uh, how I just spoke about before, with this new aquarium that I'm going to set up, uh, I'm in deciding whether I want to link them together or not. 
and have this pond as a refugium of sorts. But uh, whether I do or don't, I will put corals into that pond and just see what's going on. I know the nutrients in that pond are absolutely disgusting. Like when you tip uh, a reagent sachet for uh, HANA phosphate, the water turns deep, dark, navy blue. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah, very, very nutrient-rich in that <laughs> pond. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I can, yeah I can see how there would be a potential for allopathy in there because one of those species uh, produces a milk, like when you snap the leaves, so it could be toxic to fish, snails, I don't know. Um, so for the purpose of yep. reef keeping, I don't recommend to go and throw these plants in your reef because they aren't really reef tested. I've only tested them for salt. There are turbo snails. Yeah, there are. So the ones I have so far work with turbo snails. That's about it. Yeah, it, it's about working your way up the complexity of life form, isn't it? For yeah. tolerance to uh, and, and what you want to risk it on. But snails, you know, you start with like copepods or something like yeah. that. And, right. Okay. The pods are alive. Okay. Next step. So, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so what about kind of true aquatic plants? I mean, have you got any experience with seagrasses down there? I mean, can you tell us a bit about that? Um, I would like to put some seagrass into that pond uh, but as far as i know we've got some pretty crazy regulations uh, in queensland as for the collection of seagrasses and i don't know of any uh anyone doing revegetation of seagrass and that's how i got the plants that i do have through like legitimate channels of people growing these plants for the purpose of revegetation on like um old cane farming land and things like that, that they're being reclaimed and, and vegetated back out to be back what it was. Um, I don't know of anyone doing seagrass, so I haven't bothered with it. But I would imagine seagrass would be pretty similar to Calorpa taxifolia uh, in terms of the way that it grows. Like, I've not intentionally pulled up chunks of it down at the mudflats. It is down there at the beach or the mudflats, but it does have roots and runners that are very similar to Calorpa taxifolia, so I would imagine it would be very similar to grow. But I haven't yet. I'd like to. Okay, and just while we're on that subject, um, could you tell us a bit about the sorts of corals that are found in seagrass? I've got an inkling, but perhaps you could clear a few things up. Is that it's quite a specific habitat? So, are there certain species of corals that are just found there? Yeah, um, there's so trachophilia uh, are one of them you can find up in the shallow water, um, and it's uh, what else have I found in there? Potentially desh, but they're usually a little bit deeper. So you'll get uh, desh, cyanurina, and trachophilia on halometa beds. So the halometa is a calciferous algae, and you usually get that around about 15 to 20 metres and deeper. And wherever you find halometa, you'll usually find those other chunkier, meatier corals. Uh, but the shallow, knee-deep, and up to sort of head height water, that's where you can find trackies uh, in the shallow water. It's often really muddy, really dirty, but that's something that I always like to point out, that whilst it's muddy and dirty and you might not be able to see right in front of you, it doesn't mean the water is actually bad quality. It's just actually rich with food. So that gives us an indication of what that coral actually okay. likes because the food particles in the water, it's just rich with nutrients, like not nutrients like nitrate and phosphate. So we can't go and say, this coral likes Articulate. dirty water, so I could be a lazy reefer. It doesn't work like that. It's rich with food. Yeah. But the actual quality of yeah. the water is really good. Interesting. So um, let's go on to um, coral 
coral farming. Um, obviously, you said you don't want to go down the spawning route, and I completely get that, and that some species are slower and basically not commercially viable. Uh, viable. So um, what um, what can you tell us about coral farming? I mean, what is the kind of state of the Aussie coral farming industry at the moment versus, say, Indonesia? And, and, and where, you know, what, what, what are your kind of past, present and future kind of inputs with to do with um, the, the farming of Australian corals? Uh, probably one of the hardest things that I've encountered to do with coral farming is actually predicting what's popular or what I need to have extra stock of because, like, uh, even predicting when uh, international customers are going to order because, like, I'll have a run on uh, war coral, the Favides pentagona, there'll be just a bunch of people ordering it. And then I'll go, oh, right. So I'll get all my mother colonies and I'll butcher them all out and make hundreds of frags and then they sit there. <laughs> so I've done numerous things like that and certain uh, zoanthids or just heaps of corals are just the, the rates in which people craze over a certain strain of coral is ridiculous and it makes this job really difficult to keep up with. Uh, so that I don't frag too much or frag too little. It's yeah, it's a bit painful like that. But um, yeah, or you can uh, get rid of reduced numbers of um, certain strains of coral when they've just been sitting there. They're all grown onto the egg crates and they look terrible. Well, they look good. They've really grown well, but they don't look presentable as a frag because you've got to break it off the egg crate that's store jagged so you reduce those and then the week afterwards you get an order for 50 of them and you go really <laughs> but, um but yeah that that's uh about the yeah. most difficult thing about in uh coral farming but otherwise i love it it's it's really good it's picking up in australia um i could pretty confidently say that sustainable reefs was the the largest operation of fragging that doesn't collect or while collect um there are plenty of people around that are fragging corals and uh small operations there's lots of shops that have prop rooms like galleria portico is one of my favorite aquariums in australia um uh, they do a lot of propagation in-house and uh, then there's other collectors that are starting. It's really catching on, which is fantastic. I, I love seeing it. It is. It's been the future for a long time, and we've been saying it for a long time. And it's finally catching on that propagation or fragging or just any type of the betterment of corals that doesn't involve 100% relying on wild corals is the future. There will still be times, or I still think there's going to be species that won't be able to be propagated on a commercial scale. So they'll either fade out and drop out of the hobby to they'll either be like financially unattainable for most people. So their presence just drops off in the hobby sure. or they just simply won't be collected anymore. If, uh, especially if collections ever banned, which I hope it's not because there's a lot of species that I don't think is going to be possible to keep up the demand. Yeah, it's um, it, it's interesting from um, a retail point of view. I've done kind of import and wholesale, and it's pretty two-dimensional two in that these days people just want colour and movement. You know, people want the torches, they want the scullies, they want they want the barabank, they want the fleshy, colourful stuff. And sometimes yeah. with frags of you know stuff that doesn't move, like favites or you know various chalices, etc., it can be a difficult sell if it's not like a really popular name variety, and it can be frustrating for guys like yourself and and myself when you just kind of like okay you i'm guessing you just want the colorful moving stuff and they're like yeah that's what i want you yeah know, to the detriment of everything else to get covered in algae and polonia and you know and, and like you say just sticks to the egg crate over time like i've got some corals there that no one even knows the name of they're that rare i've still some of them just super rare species or super rare color strains and then someone will take a green star polyps like that spreading leather mat. They'll take that over it. And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> and it's, 
Yeah, yeah like, I'm, I'm offering you something that literally no one else in Australia and possibly the world has. And like, no, no, I'll take star polyps. <laughs> it's silly, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the... Um, can you tell us a bit about the Great Barrier Reef as well? I, I've never been, obviously, you know, Jake did frequently and, um, well, a couple of times at least. And um, so... Why why are you based in Cairns and why are these suppliers based in Cairns? Is it because of the infrastructure? Is that where the airports are for shipping corals out or is that like the coral hotspot? Yeah, so, well, the Great Barrier Reef uh, basically starts pretty much at the top of Queensland and Cairns is still only about two-thirds of the way up from the bottom of Queensland. So there's still a lot of Queensland above me right now. So there's a lot of reef north and there's about the same distance north as there is south. So Cairns is pretty much in the middle of the reef, but then you've got other hotspots down off Mackay, which you've probably heard that name kicking around. Uh, so that's a city uh, on, on the coast a little bit further south. And that that town there is where a lot of the boats go or the collectors live that target scollies. Uh, and a lot of ACAN comes out of there as well, and a little bit further south for ACAN. So, what well, microbusa? Uh, so, Cairns is a hotspot because, yes, it has an airport. Mackay has an airport. Uh, they are regional small town airports, but uh, so that is one reason. But also, Cairns, we have the reef. It's about a half an hour drive on in the boat. So, other da- other areas like Mackay, you've got to travel for about an hour to get to the reef, uh, to well, so where it's good. Uh, so that is one of the reasons why Cairns exists uh, for, or why Cairns is a thing for coral collectors. And I know you're a farmer, not a collector, but can you give us some insight into the frequency of these colourful corals, like like Scollys, Homophilia australis? I mean. Are they abundant? Are they sporadic? Do you have to travel a long way? Does it? I mean, how long would it take for someone to collect 20, 20 colourful, you know, appealing homophilia australis? Um, so, yeah, if I was diving off, because I, so I have done uh, a fair bit of wild collection previously with another company in part-time when I used to live down the Sunshine Coast. And then when I moved up here, it, we were wild collecting um, at least twice a month so um finding for a for the frequency of a scully to use that as an example uh diving down there off Mackay, you would probably swim over uh 50 scollies to be able to find one like bleeding apple or master or uh you know those superman ones the red and the blue they're actually more hard to come by than a like a master grade the red and the blue superman style um but if you probably brought back like if in a in a single dive like on a a no deco dive so around about 20 25 minutes at that at the depths that we were down there it's probably bringing back about 30 40 scollies or so and that's of all different grades um you might get one or two masters in that um, and that then you've got to go do your stop at the top and then you're allowed to dive again later in the day. So it's the diving and the intervals because you can't stay down all day. It's not like going to pick flowers. You have to dive safely, which means that the time that you have to collect is limited. But to be able to find the scollies, they are quite difficult. They're often in like really tall um, sargassum weed. It's a type of macroalgae that grows all over the bottom of the the rocks there. So you'd be like sifting through weed and uh, other corals. It's it's not it isn't at all like a shopping aisle of and you just pitch them off the edge. Yeah, they are. You do have to look and search and swim upside down and look under ledges and sift through stuff to to actually search things out. And um, when I've received um, 
Aussie scholars in the past, um, Queensland scholars, sometimes they are collected as like a double, you know, you get like a larger one and then another one kind of behind it at 45 degrees. And then recently we covered a story on the site about propagating them by cutting the kind of underside off and doing them that way. But what's your experience yeah. of uh, propagating scholars? Um, so that, that uh, where they grow on the underside is kind of just an accident. Like it's uh, when you're trimming the scollies on the, the saws because it get, you've got to get rid of the shipping, the excess rock. And then, so you trim that off of the saw. And if the scully, the inside of the mouth, where the down to the bottom of the scepter, if that's quite deep, it's off, quite often that the collector will trim it off really shallow and there's a flesh hangs out the bottom. And when it's sitting on the egg crate in the holding facility, especially if it's sitting in the holding facility for quite a while or it gets shipped straight away and then it sits in the shop for quite a while, well, that flesh and the mouth that hangs through the bottom will actually just regrow another one on the other side. But unless it's grown skeleton and that if you stand it up on the side and you've got yeah. a scully this side and a scully this side, you will get them, say the, the small one that's growing off the bottom is on this side, unless it's growing a skeleton, it's not a propagation method. It's just another piece of flesh on the other side. It needs to physically grow outward away so you can cut down there again and cut it off. And it's not a propagation method at all until it actually grows skeleton. Those ones that have just got a piece on the back, the, yeah, you have to stand it up like that or lay it down and kill the one on the bottom. Uh, but, yeah, I, I reckon you'd be waiting at least a year and a half for that to grow a, a significant amount of skeleton to push away from the old cut site. Uh, the propagation method that I use for scollies is cutting them like a pizza. Um, I've been doing it for many years. Um, I've got some Gen 3 scollies now that have done like that. So that is the original scolly was cut into eight, and now all of those frags grew out, and then I cut one of those or cut those again into another six or eight pieces, and now they're growing out. So that's been a long process. Um and I do have some of the ones where I've cut them too shallow by accident and it's grown off the bottom and I have them sitting out there at sustainable reefs and I have them standing up on the side and I feed both sides and I'm trying to get that skeleton to grow. It's slow. It's really slow. So, uh, yeah, to be a propagation method, you need skeleton. That's really interesting. And have you ever attempted, I know lots of people have, these grafted scollies where you cut two in half and put them together? Does that work, Shane? I may have been the first one to try it. I don't know. There's been a few <laughs> ages ago. I've got some like 2014 and 2016 screenshots of trying it and no, it doesn't work. Um, I would love it to. No, um, I, I, I didn't yeah. think it did. Yeah, I would love it too. It was, uh, I've tried it with like just half and half. I've tried it with multiples all around. I've got like cut eight different scollies up and then put one of each different eight. The best you get is all of the the pieces individually healed and then you just got like, so they're a half and then they just turn into two singles side by side. I see. And um, the pizza method is that, um, could you use it on Cinerina and on Adeptophilia? Absolutely, yeah. So I cut my Cinerina into either six or eight, depending on the size. Um, if you've got a small Cinerina skeleton and a big one right beside each other, you'll know why I do that. Um, Scully, exactly the same. Uh, Cinerina, exactly the same. Six or eight, that's the pieces. Some like. If it's really, really small, like the skeleton, I wouldn't bother fragging it. But if you just really have to cut it, you just have to cut it into four if the skeleton's, like, quite small. Um, you just got to keep the flesh size quite a lot. Um, but, yeah, the actual act of cutting these corals isn't that uh, groundbreaking. Like, it's it's a... It, well, to some it might be, but um, but cutting these corals isn't really groundbreaking in terms of um, they all frag. Like corals frag, they break. Their tissue, they can regenerate from just a few cells. Um, yeah. 
like there's the phoenix yeah. effect in fungi like there's there's nothing there and then there's fungi all over it so the what i take to be yeah the the, the trick to fragging these difficult to frag or seemingly impossible to frag corals is all about the aftercare it's what you do after you cut it and it all comes down to water quality and feeding sure amino acids vitamins and good water quality with low nutrients that's that's the trick okay so just on that i've got a couple of questions then after I, I take it, you use like a diamond blade saw, like a Griffin saw, something like that, to, yeah. to cut these corals. Do you use any kind of antibacterial agents to stop infection afterwards? Is that a thing in farming? Is that a myth? Um, do you use anything to help them repair? And then, sec my second question: um, species like scollies, do you feed them? Do you feed them pellets? as well is, is that that it's kind of opinion is divided on whether or not you should feed scallions of course you get this amazing feeding response but do you feed these large solitary um lps corals do you feed them on on, on pellets um i uh, there's so the uh as for the dip the the iodine or antibacterials so i'll start there um uh, if it's a brand new coral that i've just say bought from gallery Cortica, um and they've sent it back up to me or sent it to me and i'm, I'm gonna put it into our system 100 percent, i dip it i dip everything that's brand new because i don't know where it's been but in my in my saws that i use a gryphon or griffin or uh however you want to say it uh i used to put and I still sometimes do put a little bit of Ki3, the potassium iodide. Um, Julian, Seacam uh, Reef Dip is another one that I've used in the past. Um, just the iodine-based dip, I used to. But more often than not, I don't. And it's because if you're dipping a coral, so let's just say I pull it out of this tank here, I bring it over to my saw, and I'm washing or killing bacteria but then i'm putting those frags straight back in that tank there if there was bacteria on it they're in that tank already so there's no point in dipping it it doesn't it's just more stress for the corals so nine times out of ten i do not dip or use iodine for fragging for the purpose of fragging i don't think it helps them heal quicker um i I actually kind of tested this a little while ago. It was only on Monty, though. Uh, I got a, I think you guys call it Cherry Tree uh, Monty, and um, I got 80 frags from my mother colony, and I tested eight different dips and a control. No, sorry, seven different dips and a control. The control had no dip, and every single one of them healed exactly the same, and they were all fine. But that's just Monty. Like, if I was to really step out and say dips do nothing post-fragging, I would want to test that on quite a few species before I put my name to that. Uh, but in general, I just don't use it because if you're taking it out of a system that it's growing and it's healthy, well, it shouldn't have diseases or bacteria on it. But, yes, from other systems, always dip. Uh, and then for the aftercare of fragging scollies for example um they basically if you cut them like a pizza they don't have the ability to feed because you've cut their mouth up there's nothing there to feed so you've got to make the mouth grow back and to make the mouth grow back and all the gut and everything that it needs to digest food you need amino acids so amino acids are basically like the bricks in your house that build the proteins and the, build, the proteins build the cells, and the cells build the mouth and the gut. So you need to add the aminos and then the vitamins, uh, basically what the coral uses to either synthesize their own aminos that we're not dosing or stick the proteins from the – or stick the amino acids together to make the cells. So the amino acids and vitamins, that was really basic and loose then. Um, but uh, basically, you need to be dosing those two things, amino acids and vitamins, to get the mouth and the gut to heal. Once it's healed, 
I always dose powdered food. Uh, I used to be a big advocate for like so many years ago, I used to hear like uh, put a chunk of prawn or shrimp, depending on where you are, in it. Yeah. How many times have you seen that coral just spit it out? Or or Every you time. feed? Yeah. Yeah. It always yeah. spits it out eventually. Every yeah. time. Every single time. How many times have you put big, like a few piles of pellets in a scully and they're just gone? It's all covered in slime, but gone. Yeah. If you feed really, really small amounts of a powdered food, um, which uh, CE is just releasing one. Um, I was actually just filming videos for it today. Um, but just like reefroids, just like there's a heap of them. Uh, Gonio Power, I love that. Uh, that just incredible. I've uh, spoken to him at length about that. It's one of my favorite powdered foods. Um, but the fine powder foods seem to be digested a lot easier. So in the last couple of years, after being an advocate of feeding pellets and everything, I'd gone away from it. I can still feed pelletized food, but I don't keep it as pellets. I grind it into a paste and then feed a paste um, because then I don't seem to spit them out as much. So that's my take on feeding. And I've had a lot of success now using a powdered food or paste. And um, while we're on the subject of scullies, um, I saw a video that you made uh, a while back about like a, a worm, a burrowing worm in the skeleton, I think it was. Um, can you tell us yeah, about uh, the likelihood of wild-collected scollies um, having, having these these worms in the skeleton? Very. Uh, and it's not just scollies. It's, it's basically all corals, um, all stony corals, and even live rock. Like, um, I've had these, uh, well, they don't last too long in live rock, but in the ba- they're called lithophaga, and it's a mussel. Um, they've got a hard shell. They're a mollusk. They live inside. They use an acid. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. They use an acid to secrete, uh, they always secrete this acid and it dissolves the skeleton and makes a cavity inside the bottom of the coral. And then around the top of the mouth part of this muscle, they, um, basically feed off the coral slime. So they irritate the coral and they make it slime and then they feed off the slime and while that coral is busy trying to remake slime and, and heal, like, kind of like, it's just it's putting energy into creating slime that it doesn't need to when it could be putting its energy into yep. growing. So you'll see over time, sure, this, these muscles just deplete the energy. They're like a little parasite. They sap all the energy off the coral. But if you find it and get it out, the coral, you can be feeding your coral aminos, vitamins, you can give it food, you can give it light, you can give it the perfect water quality, but it's not actually healing or growing faster than the energy that it takes to re- uh, rebuild the slime and the tissue that this little stupid muscle is taking out. So uh, I always cut, and that's one of the reasons why collectors cut all the coral bases off because if we're getting the pests out of them. Uh, we trim all the excess rock from the outside, we trim them back really hard because we don't want those pests in there. Another reason is because also if they die in the bag, they go stinky and then it kills the coral. So if you trim the excess off from a wild coral, it ships really nice. Okay, that, that's really interesting to know. And something else we were talking about previous to this session was um, – habitats on the reef and you said something really cool about um gonies and runoff and and manganese and that sort of thing can can you tell us a bit about that shape yeah so like reef habitats um kind of mimic things that we can do in our reef that make uh that make the coral itself or sorry it makes more sense that the coral grows there because there's an abundance of it so for example Around one of the uh, the zones where acans and goniopora, or goniopora, or however you want to say it, is uh, commonly collected, there's a lot of rivers. You're right. I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's like a million different ways. Yeah, uh, the American pronunciation acropora is spins me out every time. The acropora, it's like what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, yeah, so around all these zones, around Gladstone and uh, a, a classic uh, area, there's these runoff from these uh, rivers around the area. And that central Queensland coastline is full of red dirt. And it is iron and manganese-rich yes. dirt. Rich in iron, I presume. So yeah. it's 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 coming yeah. off into the rivers and all of where these gonies and these acans or micromusa, where they're all found, is near the river mouth. So when we've played with elevating levels of manganese, especially iron's a bit funny because you can stuff up other stuff with it. But when you play with that, we've had really cool success with goni and micromusa. Um, there's other corals like uh, I mentioned this one to you in chat earlier was the uh, Microlados, so your classic strawberry shortcake, yeah. Acro. Where you find that, yeah, I've had it like, when we've wild collected it. I've had a wave that's two meters tall dump on top of my back and smash my face into the reef because <laughs> the water's only like that deep. That's where they grow, so they're like crashing waves. Wow. It's high energy. And the oxygen and the bubbles that's created from that, that's how do you replicate that in a reef? That's why a lot of people seem to have a lot of trouble keeping that wild strawberry shortcake colour. Like, I don't know anyone that has wild strawberry shortcake colour. It just doesn't happen. It always goes dark green and pink. Exactly. Well, neither do I. Green, and that's yeah. in- interesting because because when we used to ship it, it ships really badly as well because the transit yeah. time from UK to Australia is so long. And that just makes perfect sense about the oxygen. You know, the, the, the corals that would ship the worst were wild Australian strawberry shortcake. You'd open the bag, yeah. you'd get that kind of sweet and sour kind of, you know what it's like, dead acro yeah. smell. And it was always the strawberry shortcake. So that that tells me a huge amount straight away. But yeah, that and spathulata as well. Spathulata is usually found a little bit on the inside of reefs, like in lagoons. Um, so uh, the, the strawberry shortcake's right on the crashing waves and then your spathulata goes a little bit further inland or in, in reef. Um, and they're usually a little bit more sheltered, but the water itself is still only like a metre, a metre and a half deep at most. So they're getting belted with light. And they've got a lot of high oxygen washing off the top of that reef into those lagoons. So, but yeah, there's where where we find those species. Um, if I had the time, I'd love to sit down one day and it'd be pretty broad, but you could give a good indication of like uh, how certain things are found. Like, yeah, your trackies and stuff, they love food because they're found in this sediment rich, not sediment like dirt, but it's like planktons and stuff that have all washed out of rivers. So, yeah, where we find these corals is a good indication of how we can keep them better. Corals do adapt, but to get that real peak health, there's definitely some things that we can learn from Mother Nature. Now, that's really interesting that the store I'm in now, I'm hot desking in my uh, my LFS for their internet and um, they're called Bursco Aquatics and I help out there. And um, we definitely uh, prescribe manganese for, for goddies quite a lot. So it's good that I've got yourself who can kind of back that up because it was for us, it was almost kind of anecdotal. We were like, you know, five of the guys that dose manganese do better with gonies than five of the guys who don't. So, you know, we just kind of yeah. prescribe that. And, and that's really interesting to know. And it's manganese is a really weird element too. Like you, it's, uh, I'll uh, I'll say this now. Don't chase numbers with it. Like if you see, I don't like I don't whatever ICP you choose to to use, uh, you'll see their target value. Don't chase it. You'll never hit it. Well, you you could, but you'll probably poison your tank. So just be dosing to have the element there. That element is so sensitive to light and, and everyone has like manganese on ICP. Yeah, yeah, it's always low, and it's because it's sensitive to light, and we pump out aquariums with lights. It's sensitive to envir- uh, to processes in the corals, and it just okay. gets depleted so quickly. So you could probably tailor yourself a really dose, a really high dose that's dispersed over the day, but it's a risky thing to do. So I always just suggest to dose so that it's there 
not chase that number. If you if you see the recommended dose on your ICP result to dose X amount of milliliters to bring it up to this level and you do it, I reckon by the end of the day you can take another sample and it's gone. Like we've it's it's a weird element. Yeah. Very necessary, yeah. but weird. So yeah, just dose minimal amounts, so it's just always there. And would manganese be a factor for the uh, Bernard pore as well? The um, the small polyp goni is that something you have down there? Uh possibly. Uh so the Bernard pore is usually found on uh, outer reefs, usually on like reef slopes, kind of vertically. Um, but yeah, I don't think I've ever found a Bernard pore inshore like where you'd find gonies it's not to say they don't exist there but most that i've ever found were always out so they could actually come from different habitats and have different requirements even though us kind of lay acris kind of treat them the same way we treat them as gony in inverted covers yeah 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 well they they uh definitely uh well they're not gony that's yeah but as for just looking similar i guess yeah. but uh but yeah, they as far as I know, they come from quite different areas. So but there I, I don't know whether that translates. I know some people have problems with Bernard Pora. I know my my grow system currently at Sustainable Reefs, because we've got a few different systems there, and what I call my system, because it's full of the LPS and the squishy stuff. Um I'm having a little bit of sulky Bernard Pora over the last couple of months, but whereas uh Christian, my boss, He's got the uh, his systems more dedicated to SPS, and his Bernard Pora are growing off the plugs and onto the egg crate. So, when a customer orders Bernard Pora, it's coming out of his system now. But yeah, until I figure out what's going on with mine, it's just sulky, not dying or anything. It's just weird. Um, you might be able to clear something up for me while we're on the subject of runoff and rivers. Can you tell me about that river torch, the um, gold torch that's meant to be in kind of river outlets or estuarine waters? Could, can you clear that up for us? I haven't heard of that one. Um, I, yeah. There, there, there's, an, there, there's an Aussie gold torch type that comes through that the urban myth in the UK is that um, it comes from brackish waters and that's why no one can keep it. Um, gold Aussie torch for us are more difficult to maintain long term than Indo Aussie to um, gold well, torch. Uh, I'm just wondering. I think you've got some experience with um, Aussie gold torch. You've at least collected yeah. them, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, so the majority of gold torch comes from the Mackay region, very similar location or geographical location to the Scollies, but the torch itself comes from generally quite shallow water uh sometimes exposed on low tide um the where the scullies are usually on the other side of the island wow. in the deeper water so that's that's the normal 24k and you know the half bar ones the half bar ones are usually a little bit deeper the 24ks are in like that deep some days uh in cans or off cans where i am we get the Aussie gold, which have the green base and the gold stem. You do get the green base and gold stem down at Mackay as well, but the majority of the green base gold stem comes from up here. And both of those are found out of reef. I don't know of anything that's found inshore. Um, but definitely not brackish and definitely not rivers or anything like that. They might be near... I thought it was a myth. I knew yeah, it. There's be there could be a few like fringing reefs that are like close to the shore that people have found gold stem on, but certainly the water wouldn't be brackish, that's for sure. Okay, great. Have you got any um care tips for Aussie Gold Torch uh based on where you find them? Do they need anything different? I mean, do they need whiter light because they're shallow? Is that better for them? Um Possibly, yeah. Um, definitely, the high flow. Um, that's something I always find interesting. Um, people, 
or polyp extension, not just applying to torches, but polyp extension is such an interesting topic because if a, a reefer doesn't see tentacles this long coming out of their hammer or their torch, they think it's unhappy. Whereas the majority of corals in the wild have tentacles hanging out that far because the waves will nearly rip them clean out of their skeleton if they hang, if they did come out far. So my theory, I don't know if it's got merit to it, is that in aquariums, the, the longer polyps mean they're kind of stretching for light. So um, like to gain more light along the stem. Whereas where you find the gold stems in the shallow water, you're lucky to see just the tips out, the white tips that hang out the top. Um, you just see lots of heads. So it could be a light thing and it could be a wave and water flow thing. Um, but yeah, I haven't had too much trouble with them uh, for until I actually don't have many now. I lost quite a lot. Uh, but it, yeah, I had really good success for about two years and then one day the whole lot just dropped they all went and there was nothing new added to the system they all just dropped so i i don't know um too much about that right so so you lose torch as well that, that's interesting it's um, everyone loses coral if they say they don't they're buying <laughs> um I agree. yeah i agree absolutely and unfortunately <laughs> yeah. it's how we learn a lot of the time so yeah um yeah we definitely do get brown jelly uh or and the causes of that we yeah without examining it more closely with a microscope or bacterial testing that the causes of it are always going to be up in the air as well i've heard vibrio is one of the causes of brown jelly um but yeah, I'm not too sure uh, as to the causes. But yeah, it can be sporadic. We sometimes get like just one coral. Like we got grids of hundreds of corals all rowed up of the exact same type, like all Montes or torches or hammers or whatever. And one day you'll come in and just one will be brown jelly, just one. And then, and then yeah, you see that in the home aquarium somewhere, and you'll see the the panic set in from reefers, get it out, siphon it out, and it'll it infect everything. And I'm like, well, I haven't seen that yet, but I have seen it in a home aquarium. Uh, yeah, reefing's so weird. It keeps everyone on their toes. <laughs> Absolutely. It, if it was easy, we'd probably get bored and move on to something else, yeah. wouldn't we? So. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> um, so, so so, so back to the subject of the exposed corals, because I'm fascinated by this because we don't see this. You know, obviously, I I actually live by the sea in the UK and it's tidal, but there are corals. So for us to um, kind of get our heads around which corals are exposed and for how long and to the conditions. Um, I mean, so my questions would be, um, do all corals get exposed or it's obviously it's 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 the ones in the in the shallow water but are there certain species that are exposed daily are there certain species that could not survive being exposed do they get rained on do they get sun do they get wind yeah i mean what can you tell us about that um so one of my favorite little patches of of local reef it's about 40 minutes drive north of me and it's accessible from the beach and on very low tides, you can walk right out about a kilometre. And there is corals everywhere. There is, I've found hammers. I've found um, leather corals of all kinds, lots of different favias and little maize type corals like goniaster and all that. Um, uh, goni, lots of goni, uh, lots of different types of acro, heaps. Um, but yeah, so I think a lot of corals, a lot of genus have the potential to be exposed, but there are certain species within those that certainly would never be exposed. Uh, Echinata, Acropora Echinata, especially, uh, I don't think an Acropora would ever be exposed, um, ever because they're just found too deep. Um, there, there would be quite a few species that would never ever see air or oxygen in its raw form or anything like that. Um, but I think sure. a lot of corals get rained on. They have wind. We have blistering hot sun, like 
42 degree hot heat days and there's a low tide and it's a very sad day for a lot of those corals. They hate it, but they slime up and it's disgusting. And when the tide comes in, all the brown foam washes up. It's disgusting uh, and it stinks. You, yeah, yeah, you, you know that acro smell that you're talking about? It's everywhere. The whole beach is covered in it on those low tides. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of corals that can be exposed and are exposed at least once a month because, like, the the tide cycles, as you know, aren't always super super low. Uh, so we, it's not always that they're always that they're exposed, but sure. some of them are exposed a lot. And how long would they be exposed for? Are we talking hours? Some are, yeah. Some are exposed for hours, uh, especially if they're at the top of the normal low tide and then it's a super low tide and it goes out for another hour and then it stays still and then it has to come back in. So it could be at least two hours completely dry. Well, they're not dry, they're wet with their slime but yeah they're dry no it's interesting it, it takes me back to you know when i first got into the hobby a long time ago in the 90s people used to say don't take corals out of the water and now we chop them with bandsaws we use super glue and it turns out they've been yeah. out of the water the whole time for millennia you know so it's yeah. um, interesting what you learn um what else were we going to discuss so they call you shane danger coldman shane so you're a little bit wacky as as some of your followers may know you've got a tattoo for cade aquariums on your leg yeah um i don't know if i can uh, i might be able to show you uh, tell us about it's that. <laughs> it's a bit hard to show you <laughs> yeah so um basically uh there's a bit of a, i think i think yeah. it was good in, uh, good causes though wasn't it yeah it, it's a bit of a sad story actually um so a few months ago a really good friend of mine cam uh found out that their daughter uh josie she's only two or she's not quite two yet um was diagnosed with a really rare form of cancer and um, it was, so it was done on a bit of a fundraiser. So I auctioned off some skin and the Australian book, Cade, right. uh, Adam, he donated a pretty sizable sum. Um, he did actually tell me I could get anything I wanted, but um, because it came from Adam, I decided to get Cade on my leg. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's the, the diagnosis isn't actually looking good for, for Josie at the moment, and it looks like she might grow her wings. So, yeah. Um, it's uh but yeah the funds raised ever went to sort of give the family some extra time with her and whatnot but yeah so that, that's how that came about um but um yeah so and people go oh why would you want a brand on your leg it's like i don't see it as a brand i see it because did that for a mate so yeah it's good <laughs> but yeah i'm also covered in tattoos everywhere <laughs> that's uh tattoos are my thing that's um and other crazy stuff yes so um I, I saw you do pottery and um you were making a spectacled angel a conspic um last time yeah. i looked um how did that go yeah. did that turn out okay yeah that one uh that one's gone to uh, its new home um a good friend down in brisbane um and the rest are actually on display in an art gallery at the moment. Um, I think I've, they're here to the end of the month and then I've bring them back home or take them to another gallery or something. There's just an interest I've taken up. Uh, it's a bit of a, a bit of a release for getting the creative demons out. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, the last one. I made a Nautilus last night. Yeah. I haven't painted it yet or or glazed or anything like that okay. still all wet but yeah but yeah i like nautilus they're pretty cool i'd love to be able to one day do a deep sea dive if that's ever possible um cool and uh yeah i'd love to see nautilus in the wild doing their thing just bobbing along be cool 
Okay. Um, thank you very much. We're drawing near the end of our session. Uh, I just want to ask you a bit about, um, obviously, you know, Jake and Mark used to do the reef therapy. They created it. And I've got a bit of feedback on on the last couple that I've done. You know, people are asking where Mark is. And um, just, just for the listeners and the viewers, Mark was a very close long-term friend to Jake Adams, who sadly passed away a couple of months ago. And um, Mark was the first person who I asked, of course, and I didn't want to go near this, this brand, this, this thing, and you know, w- without Mark's blessing. And so um, he got back to me, and unfortunately, he declined to uh, appear on the show. He's obviously, um, you know, affected heavily, as you might expect. And um, he wished it all the best for the future. And um, um, but it's it's you know, he he declined it, but. Um, Shane, you knew Jake, didn't you? And I think, um, did you see each other at Reefstock? Yeah, uh, yeah, we've caught up quite a bit. Um, so, um, yeah, we've always spoken quite highly of each other. And um, well, I think we first met on the first Reefstock Australia when you bought Reefstock over here. Um, and we yeah had a bit to do with each other in uh, events and that kind of thing. And then I went over to Denver um not long after to do a the Reefstock Denver with him. And then just recently uh that but yeah, no, he's um it it massive tragedy and he's he's everyone in reefing it, he's touched everyone in reefing. There's not a single person that doesn't know who Jake is. So um it's yeah just a massive loss. And yeah, I, I first heard the news uh while I was up on holiday. And uh, yeah, the last three days of that holiday felt a bit, yeah, a bit down. Uh, but um, yeah, still a lot of people are taking a heart goes out to Windsor and uh, right, yeah, it's absolute tragedy. But yeah, it's uh, it's good that the Reef Builders legacy can keep going on. You've got Evan doing a wonderful job uh, at the studio, um, and then yeah, you're taking on uh, reef therapy and. Um, and hopefully all the the old hats are back on board really soon. Um, I I have written a few real basic articles for reef builders in the past. I may end up start doing it again if I can get some time. Please, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it, it's yeah keeping. I think keeping the reef builders legacy alive would be exactly what he wanted. So um, it's good to see that it's rolling on. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 massive thanks to you for coming on. I'm so, I'm so glad you volunteered to come on to Reef Therapy. It's it's a good link, and and like you say, he spoke highly of you to me. So that's great that you're on, and it's great that you knew him. And this legacy, obviously, it's a massive hole. And you know, Evan now has to do the studio on his own. That was a two man job. Now Evan's busy in the studio, just just cleaning and maintaining his big yeah. up. But now he needs to do the videos on his own. And now I've I've had to take Reef Therapy, and you know I. I, I used to work one day a week for reef builders and now I work kind of seven and I think it's the same for you know for Evan and I think Windsor's coming back on and and um, Ryan behind the scenes and Marissa who does the restock show so obviously yeah. this gaping hole is we've had to kind of patch it together and we're kind of muddling through it as best we can so apologies for the kind of lack of flow and rhythm and you know that kind of soothing nature of, of previous reef therapies hopefully we can get there and um, it's been a fascinating talk with, with yourself Shane and uh thanks for coming on the show no worries it's been awesome to be here thank you and uh, i'll definitely take you up on those article suggestions as well (laughs) all right see you later thanks a lot cheers shane thanks